Is somebody standing up who would, or would be willing to close the doors back there? Somebody, and as an act, Serena, quick, close those doors, okay? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, please. Did I say please? Yeah. Oh, there's Jeffrey, finally. Did you bring postcards? Jeffrey. It's like a, you know, dysfunctional family around here. So this is Jeffrey, the, uh, uh, what do they call him? Um, People who put on shows. There's a great, a great term for that. Thank Your you. Right. Oh, good. So tomorrow night, I'm going to do a live musical performance for the first time in about 18 months uh, in Fairfax. So, and it's for sober people, or you know, at least whatever we are. You know, I'm not. We're not going to have a breathalyzer at the door, but uh, you know. I mean, this is a time of year, you know, when it's when it can be challenging uh, to be in recovery, and and generally, this is really funny the way you did this. Generally, trying to have fun without getting loaded, you know. I will say, when I got sober, which was 1985, I, I had a band, and and we used to play at this um, sober club down in Southern California. I think it was their Friday night meeting. They would have a meeting, and after the meeting, you know, they would move all the chairs out, and we'd bring in the amps, the drums, and we'd start playing. And people started to dance right away, which, when you're used to playing in bars, is very unusual, because people don't start to dance until they're drunk. So usually, your first set, you're like playing, and people are just sitting there. And but and sober people, they don't need an excuse to dance and have fun. They just like, oh, let's have fun. You know, which I thought was really healthy. Anyway, that's a fond memory. So anyway, if you feel like coming, uh, my friend Milton here is going to be singing. Uh, he, he and I played together 40 years ago in a band called Zebra that played Afro-fusion music. And uh, we almost made it. <laughs> we were damn close. And David Geffen was like on our tail, but we, the leader of our band was crazy. And we like to blame him for all the failures of the band, even though we were also crazy. So um, we didn't quite make it. But Milton's got an incredible voice. He's going to sing my song. So if you're familiar with my album, Laughing Buddha, it's going to be like that, but with good singing. So uh, it's pretty good. So we're going to have fun. Um, what? Uh, you know, it's this. It's the women's resource or women's Fairfax Women's Club. Oh yeah, everybody knows where that is. That's, you know, when I when I got this and you know I said Jeffrey, like it doesn't say where this is. He said, Oh, everybody knows where it is. I was like, I don't know where it is. <laughs> so if you could give me an address, uh, I guess, Mister Google. Okay. Well, yeah, but that whole area, none of those people did. It's Forty Six Park Road. Boom. So, in case it hasn't become clear, my name is Kevin Griffin. Welcome to Spirit Rock, to uh, Dharma and Recovery, our once a month gathering here. Uh, 
it, it often seems like a long time between months here. And actually this time it was an extra long time because last month, the first Friday was like the 8th. And this month, is, is it the 13th today? Uh-oh. So anyway, we're not superstitious, but it's actually like been five weeks instead of the usual four. So uh, anyway. Um, so just always interesting to come out here and, and uh, you know, the, as the season has changed and now it's dark, you know, and it's wet and it's weird. And it doesn't it always, if you live in California, doesn't it always surprise you when it, all of a sudden winter comes? You're like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. <laughs> like it goes for so long that it's sunny and warm that you think it's going to be like, it's always like this, right? And then it's like, and then you're like, wait, I have something in the back of the closet I can wear. Right? So anyway, um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to meditate for a while, about 30 minutes. I'll do some guided meditation and then, uh, and then maybe some questions, Q&A about meditation. We'll have a little break and then I'll give a talk. And uh, I'm going to give a talk tonight about spiritual awakening since that's the 12th, kind of the heart of, of step 12. And uh, I have uh, some things to read uh, for that. So let's uh, assume whatever comfortable meditation positions we like to be in. You can begin by closing your eyes or if you're not comfortable closing your eyes, just lowering your gaze so that you're stepping out of the visual field, the visual realm. And just noticing how you're feeling right now, kind of checking in. If someone were to ask you, how are you feeling? And you answered them honestly, what would you say? And of course, that is something that's always changing. So it's not a fixed state. But I think it's helpful as we begin a period of meditation just to acknowledge kind of what we're coming into the, the sitting with. Are we tired or stressed or excited or sad? Just acknowledging that. And then part of the sitting will be and probably working with that to some degree, as well as really trying to let go. And it helps as we settle in to do some intentional relaxation. You might relax your jaw, just kind of let your 
facial muscles soften. Release your shoulders. Noticing the alignment of the spine, the neck and shoulders, the hips. Softening the belly, it's helpful to take a breath into the belly, really open up opening the chest as well. Just relaxing through the hips and pelvis. Feeling your sense of connection to the earth, to this being grounded and centered. Then if you can have a global sense of the body, this feeling your body as a single object sitting. Right? Feel the body as actually more of an a field of energy, of sensations. And being aware of sounds in your environment, sounds inside the room, sounds from outside if any come in, sounds of the building, sounds from your own body, even the kind of sound inside your ears, the kind of white noise. Many people pick up. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sound. Noticing how you're feeling, mood. All of this is a a way of being open, just generally aware of what you're experiencing as you settle in and then finally arrive at the breath. You can pay attention to the breath at the nostrils 
touch of air coming in and out. Or you might follow the breath at the belly, if that's easier. Just feeling the movement rising and falling. As you connect with the breath, you might make a soft mental note in, out, if you're following the breath at the nostrils. Or rising, falling, if you're following the breath at the belly. This is simply a way of helping to keep the mind focused. Sense to just give the mind something to do. Natural for the mind to wander. So noticing thoughts is an integral part of our practice. First, just noticing that thinking is happening and coming back to the breath. At some point you might also start to notice the contents and the direction of your thoughts. Give insight into your own mind, your own personality. What it is that habitually arises in the mind. Not to judge that or fight with that really to bring kindness to your own mind. Difficult to have a mind. We want to be friendly with the mind without indulging it. keep coming back to the breath.
Notice just your energy. As you get relaxed, you might find yourself starting to drift off. So perhaps establishing a slightly stronger posture, more stable. Taking some deeper breaths. On the other hand, if you find yourself getting tense or restless, seeing if you can relax a little bit more, soften, let the breath have a calming effect. If some sensation arises in the body instead of trying to change that or fix it, see if you can just explore, bring mindfulness to the sensation itself.
It's a time of year when it's particularly nice to gather inside together to meditate. Good time for a retreat. In the northern hemisphere, as the light uh, disappears, so we get less and less light. There's that natural turning inward that we do. It's also, you know, because we have this, I guess, really kind of artificial calendar that says the year begins uh, January 1st, it also kind of makes this a time of year for reflection as well. It's a really good time to be doing some practice and and uh, inner work. And, of course, in recovery, or, or as addicts, I mean, this was a time of year when many of us kind of uh, did our most uh, intense binging. Um, so it's also that kind of uh, risky time for relapse. I think. Um, so a good time to stick together, uh, to be together. Um, so I'd like to just... Um, after the sit, uh, open it up a little bit to see if there are any questions about meditation, whether questions about my instruction or about your own uh, practice. Uh, is uh, somebody handling the microphone tonight? Uh, there is a microphone, but... Uh, uh, okay, well, in any case, uh, uh, any questions? Any thoughts? Yes. Hi. I was wondering, as a beginner in meditation, what you would think is the optimal amount of Uh, you should meditate all the time. <laughs> so, uh, um, no, uh, 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 I guess uh, uh, to gi- to give kind of a, s- a simple answer and then elaborate a little bit. You know, it, it seems that most people find that it takes about twenty minutes to kind of settle in, and so if you just want to settle in. You know, 20 minutes is a nice uh, period, but then if you want to do something with that settling or, you know, uh, uh, sort of get more out of it than stretching it to half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, you know, it sort of, uh, the the thing is that uh, there's a relationship between the the calming and the amount of time you spend. So uh, up to a point, you know, there's kind of a, a gradual settling. Uh, and most people, I think, also find that those, there's a point of resistance as well. So where you're kind of settling, but then it's like, oh, that's enough. And so is that when you should stop, or is that when you should say, oh, what's, let me see if I can you know, uh, extend my, my range a little bit? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's helpful to force ourselves, but at the same time, to play that edge a little bit is helpful. So, yeah, I mean, time time has this uh, real value. I mean, the reason that there's people up the hill sitting at a silent meditation retreat uh, is that spending whole days and weeks, you know, in in practice, and not just sitting, but you know, in in a silent setting. Uh, has has this really uh, powerful effect. 
So I don't like to sort of set up like some number you know, that's going to be that's going to be magical. What I think is more important is is to be consistent in practicing each day. Because uh, just like sobriety, there's something about stringing together days and kind of, and, and so that you are sitting with whatever is up. There's a lot of this practice, mindfulness practice, is about learning to be with whatever is, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, you know. And, and can I be with any sort of physical and mental states uh, without kind of having to run from them? Uh, or cling on to them either. Just like, oh, can I just be easeful with whatever's happening? So day by day, each day, our mind and body are changing, and you sit down to meditate, and it's different from yesterday and you know, different from tomorrow, and, and um, you get to sort of explore. So that consistency is more important ultimately than how long you sit at a particular time. As for time of day, uh, you know, this has practical implications, for most people, like when do you have time? Uh, but certainly, there there's sort of a, a a standard that many people find it helpful to meditate first thing in the morning, or essentially before their day gets away from them, uh, because it's hard to stop. <laughs> you know, in, once you get once you get going, it's hard to stop. Uh, you know, when I learned TM originally. They t- told us to meditate 20 minutes twice a day. And that, it's nice to, when you meditate twice a day, that gives you kind of two different perspectives on your day. Like if you do in the morning and then in the evening, you kind of feel these different energies and different mind states that you kind of sit with and it has different benefits. Um, so, but another kind of practical aspect of this is when are you, when is your body and mind most suited to being in meditation you know like if you're somebody who takes a long time waking up in the morning then maybe it's not that helpful for you to get out of bed and sit on a cushion and you just start nodding out right away or if you find yourself really low energy in the evenings that you just conk out well that's not that helpful so to sit when you can be alert and and feel uh, present uh, as you can see, I don't like to give you know definitive answers for people. I think it's so much because this practice is about self-examination and asking yourself, you know, what works for me ultimately. So, see what you can do with that. Thank you. Yeah. Light and dark. Light and dark. What do you like? You like to meditate in the dark? I don't really have to learn it, so it's yeah. like um, I noticed that there, a lot of people do like to turn the lights down for meditation. For me, that just encourages me to get more sleepy. Uh, and that might be pleasant, you know, but I actually prefer to have relatively uh, I'll be the one who comes into the meditation hall and like flips on the lights people are like we're trying to meditate like um, so <laughs> again I would just ask you to explore what happens uh, 
and to be honest with yourself. Like, is that, do I just like this because I kind of get to go like, you know, oh yeah, it's nice and dark. Or is it, is it truly helping you? You know, what's, what's happening? I yeah, it could be. I don't know. I mean, my wife puts in earplugs and an eye shade when she goes to sleep. I think that's just because she doesn't want to have to see me when she wakes up in the morning. But uh, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> thanks. I don't. Well, let's take a little break. We'll take about 10 minutes. We'll come back and uh, talk some more. And uh, As you know, there's tea and some snacks out there. And the bookstore is full of alluring literature. Is this... Uh, let's see. Testing. It's on. What did you press? I just press press the red button to make sure. I put them on when I came today, and then I tested it, out. so it should be on. Okay. I wasn't quite sure.
I'm going to go get a little more water. Yeah.
things uh, before I get into my talk. Uh, um, let you know that I'll be teaching a day-long retreat here on the 27th, uh, which I've, this is sort of one we've done several years in a row, keep coming back, Dharma Recovery and Renewal. So today to kind of uh, uh, reflect back, but also especially kind of uh, look forward in our recovery, kind of recommit uh, to our practice and to our program. Um, I also have some of my books out there, uh, not in the bookstore, but uh, just along the wall there, my workbook and uh, my book, Living Kindness, that uh, you can purchase for $10, which is uh, thanks to uh, the fact that no publisher is taking money. Uh, Greedy publishers, uh, I can sell them cheaper. Uh, So, uh, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about uh, spiritual awakening tonight. And um, uh, some of you have heard me mention that I'm working on a book uh, of daily reflections. Um, And it's kind of a step book as well. It goes through the 12 steps, through the 12 months. and as I, as I got into it, I decided that on the last day of each month, I would write uh, something called Spiritual Awakening, which would reflect on the, the element of that, uh, the, the kind of spiritual awakening element of that particular step of that month. Um, and, and that's because even though it's step 12, uh, is the step where spiritual awakening is mentioned, um, you know, my view is that there's spiritual awakenings happening all through the process of recovery. So just as a reminder for those who aren't familiar with the steps, step 12 of the 12 steps, the last of the 12 of the steps, uh, says, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, addicts, whoever, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So step 12 has multiple dimensions, you know, and, and one of the things that's interesting about it is that it, it starts by saying we've had a spiritual awakening, but it then suggests that from that awakening what we will want to do is help other people. So it, that, you know, this sort of uh, a spiritual uh, maxim that, that we don't really do it for ourselves, that it's ultimately... Uh, out of service for others, which we see in the life of the Buddha as well. Um, but I thought I would, uh, I printed out the that day uh, from this book. It's not published yet. Um, I'm in the editing phase. Uh, and so I printed out the, the last day of the month of each of the months and highlighted a few lines to sort of take you through these ideas and to think about spiritual awakening not as something that just happens in step 12 but as I say as part of the whole process and indeed you know if we look at what step 12 says uh, it doesn't exactly tell you when the spiritual awakening happened right it says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps well 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it just happens at that moment. So, excuse me. So for January 31st, which would be step one, just, this is, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a few lines. The spiritual awakening of step one is the realization that our behavior was not only destructive, but unnecessary. When we realize we don't really need the drugs or booze, the binging or gambling, the sexual acting out or the codependent behavior, it frees us for the first time from that trap. Uh, I want to say also, before I go further, that this, particularly this stuff uh, about spiritual awakening is very much like my opinion, (laughs) even though I state it as facts uh, in this book. that's just for the to to keep it simple uh, but uh you know i think there are many ways we can interpret spiritual awakening um, spiritual awakening doesn't have to be a mystical experience or magical moment of connection with god rather it is an understanding paired with a change of attitude We no longer live in the illusion that our addiction is serving us in some way and we begin to turn our life in a new direction. It opens us to new possibilities and new dimensions of ourselves. We even begin to question our very identity. Who we thought we were was part of the prison of our addiction. Now we set out to to discover who we really want to be. What brings us real happiness? what is truly important for us. This is all part of the journey of awakening that starts with step one. So uh, the other thing that I want to say, and this is another kind of big picture uh, question, is, is to sort of investigate the word spiritual itself, which... Uh, kind of like like the word God and, and a lot of other kind of uh, terms in this realm can, can kind of be loaded. It can be fraught for people. You know, some people are really turned off by the by the idea of spiritual. Uh, they think of it as something phony or superficial or uh, or empty. You know, kind of uh, you know unrealistic. And and my idea of spiritual is to contrast it more with uh, the term material. So, uh, in a sense, saying that you know the t- the typical way of understanding what brings happiness uh, to our lives and what sort of guides our lives is the material world, becoming materially fulfilled, right? Getting the right job and the right relationship and the right you know living in the right house or uh, you know, having enough things, you know, the right degree and, and sort of status and all of that that comes with the material world. And, and of course, addiction is this sort of uh, way out in the spectrum of that, you know, trying to find happiness through putting substances into your body. Um, and it's a confusion, right? From a Buddhist viewpoint, it's like wrong view. It's not, not understanding happiness and realizing that, you know, that, the spiritual view is that happiness comes not through those material things, but through the inner life, which 
and of course the inner life then informs the outer life but we're not sort of outer driven we're more inner driven and then that that informs how we behave in the world because the, because spirituality also uh, implies an ethics that comes out of compassion I was talking t- about this with some of my mentees the last couple of days uh, about how when we uh, when we talk about precepts or uh, morality, you know, uh, in our culture, to some extent, you know, the, the, even the word morality has been somewhat hijacked by, like, the right-wing fundamentalists uh, who sort of define it in their own terms. And, and so that a lot of people, more open-minded people, I would say, or more progressive people, feel kind of alienated by that because they think of it as something uh, oppressive uh, or judgmental uh, and about rules. Uh, and in Buddhism, we don't come to the precepts or to our morality uh, out of a sense of obligation or some kind of trying to suppress our impulses, but we come to it out of our understanding of interconnectedness. So when we explore the inner life, what we discover when we go deeply inside is that we are not separate from others. And this is one of the key insights of spiritual practice. That when I see that inside me there are just these archetypal experiences, uh, you know, these human experiences of, of fear, of desire, uh, of anger, of joy. You know that 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 there's no, none of it belongs to me. It's not personal to me. It's just a human experience. And as I see that, as I become uh, disidentified with it as being me, that naturally opens me up to the realization that oh, all other humans, at least, have these same experiences. And when I have that realization, I realize that my actions might. That I, 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 my impulse then grows to be kind to others, because I see that you're not different from me, right? and, and the hurting you is like hurting myself. And and so, out of that grows that natural impulse to live in a moral way, an ethical way. That and and in fact, Venerable Analia, one of the great modern Buddhist scholars says that uh, following the precepts not to kill, not to steal, not to harm sexually, not to lie or speak harshly, even not to use intoxicants, that following those precepts is an act of compassion in and of itself. I think that's really beautiful because typically we think of, again, these, oh, well, these are the rules and I'm supposed to follow them. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. But when we think of it not as, oh, trying to fit into some uh, rule book or, or some moral framework, but we think of it as, oh, this is a gift to the world, that's much more inspiring and much more meaningful and, in fact, more motivating, you know, ultimately. Because if you think, oh, this is just a rule, but, you know, if I could get away with it, you know, if I found that money or you know, whatever the situation is, you know, that that I would get away with it, uh, you know, then 
you know, that's a false kind of uh, ethics. It's, you're not living by something internal that's really uh, resonating on a deep level. So, so, so just this word spiritual, I think, is an important one to investigate on that level, that it, you know, that it begins with this realization that happiness comes from on inside, and we do this inner work, but then we see that it manifests in all these external ways as well. And that's step one. I don't think we're going to make through all 12. I knew this was going to happen. February 28th. And I, I will note that I do have a February 29th in there. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, I do the spiritual awakening on the 28th so that people get it every year. Step two awakens us to faith. Our addiction was an expression of a lack of our faith in life, in ourselves, in whatever powers there are in the universe. We lacked faith that a life lived without substances or some control exerted on our part would be tolerable. We felt we had to control things, especially our consciousness and our feelings. We lacked faith in our own capacity to survive life's challenges without being loaded. And we didn't think we could overcome our addiction. We lacked our faith in our capacity to overcome addiction. Finally, we felt that in some way the universe couldn't be trusted, that just doing the next right thing wasn't enough. Step two turns these beliefs around. It challenges us to trust in ourselves and in the universe. Its implication is that there is a process by which recovery, healing, and yes, sanity can be developed. The Buddhist view is that humans have the potential for enlightenment if we let go of our lower impulses, the ego drive, Before we can start that process, though, we must believe it is possible. This step puts us on the path toward that transformation by challenging us to believe that we can change. March 31st. The revelation of step three, its spiritual awakening, is the tremendous power of acceptance. This step embodies the spiritual paradox of surrendering to succeed. Putting acceptance in the forefront of our lives seems to magically smooth out all the bumps. I might correct that and say many of the bumps. To diffuse the conflicts and to ease all the changes that life throws at us. Instead of trying to get around problems or manipulate events, now our attitude is one of problem-solving. Here is what life is presenting me, what might be a wise way to deal with it. Not looking to blame or fix, we simply want to do the next right thing. This attitude neatly parallels the Buddhist path of mindfulness and compassion. In focusing on the present moment, we are engaging what is, not wishing for what isn't. In meeting each situation with love, we are leading with kindness, not creating conflict.
Yeah. You know, obviously steps two and three are when the concept of God appears in the steps and higher power. Uh, and to some extent, I I kind of uh, don't focus so much on that idea as a, as being the crux of the steps. I, th- I think sometimes that uh, the word God kind of gets in the way of our real appreciation of the meaning of the steps. Uh, is it such a loaded word as I mentioned before and it and it it uh, you know we come to it with so much baggage that that to to try to really look behind that word and what what the step is saying is more important to me than as people seem to do and or at least you know I've seen happen a lot like a sponsor saying, you have to figure out what your higher power is. And and I don't really buy that, actually. I, I don't think that you have to figure out higher, what your higher power is. I mean, as the, as the saying goes, you know, as long as you know it's not you, that's a good starting point. But the idea of turning your will and your life over uh, doesn't necessarily have to be about some other power, you know. It's really about letting go of control in my mind. And that's why acceptance is kind of what I look at in step three. I mean, when I, when I really first got engaged with step three, uh, early in my recovery, it was that acceptance part that was important to me. It wasn't God. It was the idea that, oh, like I need to deal with this and, and not be in conflict with reality. What what am I going to do with this, with things as they are, rather than I need to get away from this, I don't like this, I need to get high. You know, it's like, no, oh, I can deal with this. It actually, because it's another way that people will sort of, who don't, I think, understand the steps, will, will think that somehow step three is suggesting we should be passive, but I actually found it made me more active. That's why I say it, it, it's, there's a problem-solving element to it. It's like, if I accept this is the way things are, then I have to do something about it. It's in my rejection of things that then uh, makes me passive because then I, I just get like, oh, well, I'm not going to deal with it. Uh, no, that's sort of my take on it. I'll see how far I get with this because I want to open this up at some point. But um, There's a lot of highlighting on April 30th. Uh, the spiritual awakening of step four is the awakening to our inventory. Sort of obvious, but anyway. Um, just, you know, it's always good to criticize yourself when you're, you're writing, especially re- when you're reading it in public. Uh, don't buy this book. It's, it's, it's crap. I'll try to make it better. By the time it's published, it'll be way better. This starts with seeing the truth of our past unvarnished. No longer trying to justify or defend our behavior, we take in the harm we've done and use that history as a stepping stone to deepening our recovery. If we're going to become different people, we must first see who we have been. As painful as this work can be, it is also one of the most valuable parts of step work. Rigorous honesty is at the heart of recovery, And the inventory is where that really begins. Inventory 
can't be just a negative examination. It needs to include the good as well, if it is going to be truly honest. At times, looking at our good qualities can be as difficult as the bad. Um, A couple more lines from in here. What we learn in our inventories informs our life in an ongoing way. Our patterns of behavior, our mental habits, and all the conditioning that drives us both... uh, Oh, that drives both, are revealed in the inventory process. So that's like the awakening, right? Oh, this is who I am. And it's that, again, that rigorous honesty. Um, you know, I mean, this is what's so powerful about step work and recovery work. And obviously it doesn't have to be done with the 12 steps necessarily, but this is one mode for doing that. You know, the step one is really the first inventory that we do in the in twelve step work. It's oh, I made a searching fearless moral inventory that I was an addict, right? So see that. And and that first inventory is maybe the hardest one, right? For most of us to admit maybe for I think I could probably say for all of us to admit that we had this problem that we had a disease or we, that we were addicts or whatever, however we define it, it's really hard. It takes a really long time to get around to that. You know, that's why a lot of the people who get in recovery don't do it when they're like 18. They're the lucky ones who do it when they're 18. But a lot of us spent a couple of decades trying to not do this, trying to not get into recovery, you know. And we did a good job, at least as far as that as far as that went. But you know that that is just one inventory, right? And then as we really get into this process and embrace it, we see that how rich and how uh, how much we can benefit from being willing to really look at ourselves. And and this is another place where I think that kind of the Buddhist view of self can help us. Because if you take this personally, it's really painful. And, you know, it's still not easy. But when you you develop this sort of disidentification that the Buddha is pointing to, like, again, sort of going back, I was talking about already, that that, uh, this isn't me, these... These behaviors, these thoughts, these feelings don't belong to me. They don't define me. uh, Then I can look at them and see them clearly and then I can do something about them. As long as I sort of don't want to uh, take responsibility for them, then what I'm going to do is try to justify them or blame others for them or pretend they're not there, be in denial about them. And so, as long as I'm doing that, I'm never going to grow and I'm never going to change. So, the inventory is so vital to that. And I, you know, one of the things that happens to us as we work through this type of uh, experience, this uh, exploration, 
is that it's, we become what the Buddha called easy to admonish, uh, like this phrase, like that you should be easy to admonish. You should be w- ready and willing to take, you know, criticism. That you should be ready to look at the the things that are unskillful that are, that you're doing. Step four trains us to look honestly from ourselves from now on. The old self-indulgence and self-deception can't take hold anymore with this newfound understanding. That's pretty freeing. I was talking um, last month at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery where I'm I'm usually there on the fourth Tuesday. Um, I was talking about uh, freedom from the the Buddhist view on freedom because there's one text where the Buddha says that uh, what he teaches has only one taste like the ocean has only one taste of salt his teachings have only one taste the taste of freedom but uh, and this was a I took the text from Bhikkhu Bodhi who's another of the contemporary scholars who was kind of discriminating between or contrasting uh, what he called uh, the freedom of license, like to do whatever you want to do, which is kind of a very American version of freedom, and the freedom of what he called spiritual autonomy. So not being enslaved by your addiction. Right? Uh, that, and and it's, it's another good uh, term and word to explore, this word freedom. It's used a lot around these Buddhist circles, like to be free and, you know... Um, kind of makes me think of Bob Dylan uh, uh, to dance beneath the diamonds sky with one hand waving free. Uh, that That's an image for me. Like that's free. When I hear freedom, I think, yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free. But that's not really spiritual autonomy, right? That's like, I'm having a great time, you know. This is really good acid. The weather is perfect. <laughs> You know, wow, it's all happening. Or as Paul Simon would say, it's all happening at the zoo. But that's another song entirely. So, but the idea of of freedom as not being, I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. I can have as many guns as I want, you know, or I can drive as fast as I want, or I can be as, you know, steal all the money I want. I can be a billionaire, you know. Um, but that, but that, no matter how much of this, you know, external freedom or freedom of license, as he calls it, I have, it doesn't free me from my own greed, hatred, and delusion, from my own inner uh, struggle. You know, like the grasping and the things that really cause suffering. I don't know how I got to that, but so May thirty first. The spiritual awakening of step five is the realization that our inventory isn't unique that our story isn't special and that everything we've done deserves forgiveness and compassion. 
the realization that we aren't unique in our behavior is part of the larger door of compassion opening for us. Stepping out of the realm of addiction, we can see that everyone, not just addicts, makes mistakes and hurts other people. We see the world is full of this pain. Everyone wants love, and yet everyone hurts those they love. We see that this is the story of the human race, and that we are just another example of how that story has played out. We've woken up now to the universality of suffering. Our recovery is starting to make a turn that will play out over the succeeding steps, a turn away from the personal and towards service, connection, and interdependence. It's kind of pretty. A little bit more. Um, I think I'm going to... Let's see what step 12 says. (laughs) Oh. Looks like I'm going to read the whole of step 12. It's not too long. Oh. That's not step... Oh, it says December 1st. That's weird. Oh, maybe it, yeah, it is December first because I think for for uh, December I I started with with spiritual awakening. Anyway, each month we've looked at the spiritual awakening associated with the step of that month. Now we can look at the very idea of spiritual awakening. In the various Buddhist traditions, we see different definitions of enlightenment, but its essence seems to be non-attachment either to the material world, to sense pleasure, to beliefs and ideas, to other people, and perhaps most importantly, to self. The steps parallel these ideas with the need for non-attachment to our addiction and the recognition that self-centeredness is at the heart of our problem. This means the spiritual awakening is having a clear understanding and insight into the need to let go on multiple levels. So once again, we come back to this simple idea at the heart of all spiritual practice, letting go. This is the essence of the Four Noble Truths and the Twelve Steps. It runs counter to the human tendency, economic pressure, and social conditioning to cling. As addicts, we clung to our substance or behavior, but then discovered freedom when we let go of that clinging. This insight inspires us to look at other ways we cling and other ways we need to let go. We discover how just clinging to the material world as a source or way to happiness was a myth, and we begin to let go further on that level. We discover how clinging to self, to ego, was another trap, and we work to let go there as well. We see how resisting change, clinging to the way things are right now, would inevitably bring grief as everything must change. And so we tried to let go of the very idea of permanence itself. Eventually we realized, just as the Buddha said, that any clinging whatsoever will cause suffering. Today reflect on what you cling to. Probably none of us will ever let go completely, but it helps for us to be honest about where we resist this path to awakening. So I try to each end each day with a short reflection. So, um, yeah, I think I don't usually sit up here and read 
a lot. So uh, appreciate your patience, attention. So maybe maybe questions or thoughts or reflections of your own about this uh, idea of spiritual awakening. One thing I will say that I know is that as you were sitting here listening, you were also thinking. Um, It would be lovely if your minds were just perfectly receptive and empty and just taking in everything I said, but I'm guessing you were having some thoughts uh, because that's what we do uh, when we listen. So you could share some of those. Um, what did you say? I said I'm a double dipper. A double dipper. It's okay. We're, so you know. my question is, I know you spoke of how sometimes people can have a Why don't negative... You, if you use the microphone, then people can hear you. Can have a negative you know, gut reaction to the word God yeah. or spirituality. What would you recommend in that case? Like, how would you? I've tried to kind of turn that word to love, but it doesn't work in every instance of yeah. the steps. I really appreciated that you said that it's not the foundation because yeah. it's been an obstacle in my recovery. It is interesting to um, substitute love for God literally in the steps and say, I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of love. That, you know, wow. You know, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it, in a way? Uh, but yeah, um, uh, so... What I mostly, the way I mostly look at it, uh, there's kind of two two words that I point to for higher power. One is dharma, which is, you know, generally means truth, but more specifically the teachings of the Buddha. So if I turn my will and my life over to the teachings of the Buddha, what that means for me is that I'm trying to live in alignment with or in harmony with those teachings. Uh, so there's nothing magical about that. You know, I, I think it's also the language of the steps because it comes out of this Christian tradition. It sort of has this, uh, it's understood in a certain way, like turning your will and your life over is somehow you're, you don't have to do anything anymore or something, or something's going to fix you. And yet, nobody I know who works the steps thinks, oh, now I'm done. You know, oh, God's going to fix me now. In fact, usually when people work the steps, they get more actively constructive in their lives. So that kind of puts the lie to the idea that it's really, okay, God's going to take care of me. But if I think about the Dharma as I'm turning my life over to it, meaning not so much, oh, here you are, now I'm not responsible, but rather I'm, I'm looking at the Dharma as a guide to me. That, that instead of thinking of it as, oh, there's God up here and I'm down here. Or God up there and I'm down here. That I think of Dharma as a partner. You know, that's, that's a power that I'm in partnership with. And when I, you know, go off the path and I break that relationship, well you know, I bear the consequences of it. And then I'm like, oh, I need to get back in harmony with the Dharma. And where was I off? And so, you know, and the Dharma gives very clear teachings about being mindful, about being 
kind, about living ethically, about what's my intention, about how even how I speak. You know, it, it's really like a very complete guide to living. And so the idea for me of turning my will and my life over to that gives me something very real to work with. Uh, it also implies that I'm going to have to study something to figure out what it is. What does that mean? Uh, the other word, I said there were two words. The other word that I would use is the law of karma. You know, Karma just means action or the results of actions. The law of karma says that my actions have results. So one of my understandings about truly a power is that there is a power in, in the law of karma. That is, when I take certain actions, there are certain results. I can't get around that. I can't drink uh, you know, a bottle of Jack Daniels and think I'm not going to get drunk. You know, that's just like karmically impossible. You know? And if, you know, if I keep showing up and I keep, keep doing the next right thing, those actions will bring certain types of results. If I'm doing skillful actions, if I'm living in harmony with the Dharma, then benefits come. They aren't, they aren't like things I can you know, take to the cash register. And there isn't sort of a one-to-one correspondence. Oh, I gave a bum a dollar, so I'm going to win the lottery. You know, it's not like that kind of magical thinking. But it's that, that my life starts to be harmonious because I'm living in harmony with the law of karma, with the Dharma. Yeah. Kind of a follow-up question to that. Okay. Just, you two are like a team. I know, yeah. Uh, well, we're, I think we're both new at this kind of, or at least I am. Um, yeah. But what about just considering like the cosmos as your God, or just like the universe? Or well, what, does that, what does that mean for you? Just there's some kind of just like, like the pole, you know, this, this, just the movement of everything and like... Or is it really just Earth? Is Dharma just Earth, or no, is it considered a, 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 a Dharma implies something more like uh, a? I guess I would call it more spiritual laws, the law, but sort of the laws of the universe. Uh, I mean, the cosmos as just a material thing, like space and galaxies and stuff. I'm not sure what my relationship is with them. Like if I turn my will in my life over to stars, <laughs> then how is that? What's that? Gonna, what's that? How's that going to manifest in my life? I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I, I, I like the idea of something that's very sort of tangible. perfect word. So someone else had their hand up. Uh, Olivia, right beside you. <laughs> uh, so I, as I was listening, uh, Kevin, I. I guess I was thinking that as an alcoholic, I okay, but don't I like it. ice cream. Um, that as an alcoholic, I'm, and more generally, I cling to clinging. You know, clinging is sort of you know something that hurts so good, uh, and that. I, you know, it's it's very difficult whether because you drank for years, maybe you have a physiological element or genetic, what have you, in there. The clinging, you know, becomes really inbred, uh, and you know, it it and it. Of course, 
can apply in other settings. So, you know, whether it's food or ice cream in my case, yeah. uh, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, fame or material goods or a person, what have you, that I've conditioned myself over a period of time yeah. to cling. That's right. And yet, by somehow relinquishing through the steps, clinging to a thing which will certainly, you know, destroy my life in one way or another, you know, I've accomplished something very serious and, yeah. and very good for myself and maybe for others. But it doesn't mean that the clinging to clinging necessarily has gone away. Maybe it's given me a pathway. But it's also dangerous because I I might feel I need something to replace that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or if I don't have something to replace it, I want to go back to what I was clinging to before. So it's kind of this paradox of having achieved something significant and letting go of alcohol and hopefully some of the, the patterns of behavior and thinking that led to that, or at least led to my inability or refusal to accept my alcoholism. Um, but I, at the same time, that per se doesn't necessarily mean I've given up on clinging altogether. Right. And maybe that's just the human experience and we got a really bad case of it. But it seems to me that, you know, as you were talking about clinging, I really realized that, you know, it, it, it's something we have maybe more so than a lot of people. Yeah. And yet maybe we also have tools that other people don't have if we use them. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a good question. It's actually something that kind of came up last weekend. I, I went to a day-long retreat with uh, Lee Brasington in the city and, and and I think that partly why we fall back into that is familiarity as you're kind of pointing to that it's like I'm used to this this is uh, this is habitual to be to be habitual or to, as you say kind of clinging to clinging and because you know there's a part of us that would rather have a certain degree of pain that we're familiar with than venture into something unknown, you know, not knowing what it's going to be. And and it can be, you know, not having something familiar can be disorienting and, and uncomfortable. And we kind of turn back to that that familiar place, even though it's painful. It's kind of why you go back to the X, the abusive X, you know, Sorry to even bring that up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, I stopped right before reading step six. And I think, in a way, now we're really talking about step six and seven. You know, step six says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So I think what you're really up against is willingness, you know, and uh, that this is a process playing out. And not to say, I don't want to, you know, put out that there's like, oh, you're going to get to, if you just work the steps enough that, you know, eventually you'll get to a place where there's, this isn't there anymore. But 
but I think that you can work this process enough that uh, you don't fall into traps of you know clinging to things that really do uh, cause you pain, whether they are behaviors or particularly emotional patterns. I mean, as a sort of recovering depressive, I know I really clung to those depressed feelings uh, and they were very familiar, but they were, they also, I mean, they were seductive, but they were also, it was also very much this belief that that was who I was. So that's sort of like that. So all of this has to do with willingness to change, right? Being willing to say, and, and a certain amount of faith there's some like that it's possible to change as I was talking about with step two but but I think that to say you know to say no this isn't really good enough it's not enough to just stop using this substance I I can be happier and what am I willing to do to do that And, and that means you know getting out of certain comfort zones right and trying new things and and uh seeing what uh what it feels like to step into the unknown. I mean, that's, that's kind of vague, you know, language, but, you know, I think it's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jeffrey. Yeah, Kevin, um, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, where would I see you? If yeah. I, where so would you, you find have... me, you know, to drag me into these... Yeah. performances. Um, well, you asked me what I was doing, and I told you what I was yeah. doing. You said I just strung some new strings on my guitar. That's true. But anyhow, Kevin, so anyhow, <laughs> you're talking about a spiritual awakening, yeah. right? Which is great, because um, I wish you luck with this book, because certainly there's a, you know, you know, we attend a lot of meetings where we go round and round and ground and down about the addiction, but the idea of how do we have the spiritual awakening and move on with our lives. I mean, I always had the sense that there were two of me. You know, there was the addict that kept saying, man, this is bad and it's just getting worse. And if I don't stop, I'm I'm just going to die. And I was always looking for a way out, you know. Um, And so I think that once you make the cut with this serious thing of addiction, and you make a commitment to surrender, then for me, I mean, I always wanted to follow the Buddhist path. I mean, I love reading books for, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love, you know, going to NA meetings. I love going to Al-Anon meetings. I go to any goddamn meeting that's scheduled, right? right? But really, they don't go much further than what's inside there, and that's, and that's one of the things, that's one of the things, I mean, I don't want to tout the art project, but that's one of the things that I've found with people inside the rooms is there are artists that are taking their lives back. Mm -hmm. And so writing this book, I think will be exceedingly helpful to people that want to, you know, meditate. I mean, you talked about kind of had questions like, you know, how long do I meditate? And really the only thing meditation's done for me, and it's not a lot at a terrible session tonight, but I do twice a day is Jeffrey gets an opportunity to meet Jeffrey, you know, on a Friday. Yeah. And and, and and I appreciate that. So I look forward to getting to step six. <laughs> hey. 
Hi, thank you for your talk. Yeah. I'm Ed. Um, this is kind of a geeky question, I guess, because I'm interested. I've been around about as long as you, but I'm interested in the um, uh, language mapping, like trying to map Buddhist language to the 12-step language, which definitely has its origins in Christianity. And why do you feel a need to do that? Why I need, I feel I need to do that? Yeah, why, if, I guess, why I, like Occam's Razor would say that, like, if the Buddhist language was good enough, and it was lighter and less confusing, um... Like, why do I need a deity? Oh, the yeah. 12 steps. Um, yeah. And then overlay some explanation mm-hmm. from a Buddhist perspective. Right. Okay. Well, it's given me a job anyway, you know. <laughs> so it uh, keeps me busy, keeps me off the streets, as they say. Well, I'll say that, you know, the, uh, I mean, how I came to do this was that. I started practicing Buddhism before I got sober. But after I got sober, I realized I'd missed more than just something. I'd missed a lot in Buddhism. And and I realized I had a lot of other work to do that I hadn't dealt with as just a meditator. Now, I was a pretty serious meditator. I mean, I went on a three-month retreat you know, about in my first year of practice. But... Um, but I still didn't really get the bigger picture. And so the steps allowed a different kind of transformation for me. And and after six or seven years in recovery, I, you know, I kind of was feeling drawn back to Buddhism. I mean, I had continued to practice, but I felt more... It was when I moved to the Bay Area been living in LA and I moved to the Bay Area and, and it was kind of like wow here's all these teachers and uh, you know started taking longer retreats again and and then so it was a very personal project it was like uh, these steps have really really been transformative for me but I love the Dharma and so I wanted to see how I could think about the steps using the Dharma so for me it was like just for you know, starting from that place. I also saw that people in the meetings I would go to didn't know how to meditate and got really stuck in the 12-step language. So I came to see that the things that I was learning and was kind of coming to understand and my my ways of putting this together could be of benefit. I at least I thought that it could be beneficial to share them. And at the same time, you know, I wound up getting it through this process. I had gone back to school and I got an MFA in creative writing and I couldn't sell any of my novels. So I wrote this book one breath at a time and that sold. So, you know, you do the next right thing that's available, right? So that there that was... And it's it's well, it's true in a way that you could say, oh, I mean, there's certainly Noah Levine 
with his refuge recovery, kind of said, well, let's just forget about the 12 steps and let's just use Buddhism as a, as a straightforward path for Noble Truth, the Eightfold Path. Oh, happens to add up to 12, but let's not mention that. Because uh, somebody might think we're imitating the 12 steps. Uh, and, but we are using the word inventory a lot. So, But anyway, not to poke holes, but poking holes anyway. Um, so what for me, there's a certain... I actually... I use the word, I don't have a problem with the word God, actually. I didn't really struggle that much with that word. I, I saw that other people did. But for me, the thing is, the, uh, the idea of turning your will and your life over to the care of God, yes, that's in Buddhism when it says, take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But people don't, but, the, but the, the, actually the theistic language is more powerful in a certain way. It's more demanding and and, and so I think that's one way in which the steps sort of push you in a way. There's sort of a, a way in which Buddhism is sort of offered as, oh, here you can try this. With the 12 steps, more like, you need this. You know, you've got a problem. Like, you, you need to do this. And so there's something more insistent and, like, you know, demanding about... You know, you can sit down to meditate and sort of notice the things in your mind and observe, oh, I've got these qualities, you know, desire and aversion. But that's different from doing a searching and fearless moral inventory. You know, that's very demanding and it, and it forces a kind of honesty that's implied in Buddhism. But I don't think, particularly in Western Buddhism, I don't know about Asian Buddhism, but, but I don't think in Western Buddhism we dig as deep into the, uh, the the teachings uh, and the potential for the teachings as we might. And I think that the steps actually can give us kind of an impetus to go uh, to, to, to practice Buddhism in a, in a more engaged way, a really nuts and bolts way that that's, uh, can be really transformative. I, so I just find the two together to be really powerful. Um, Yeah, thanks for asking. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. Aaron? Hey, Kevin, thanks for um, your readings tonight. I, uh, I I just I recently finished your, your book, Living Kindness. Yeah. And, um, you know, the book's a lot about sila and living in this moral yeah. way. Um, and you talk a lot in the book about... Um, how in Western Dharma we we privilege meditating over living morally. Yeah. Um, the steps don't, right? The right. steps are very practical and very, um, uh, uh, you know, meditation is list, me- mentioned once. Yeah. At the end, or right. almost at the end. You didn't talk about step 11, but um, my question is, well, I don't even know if it's a question, but my musing is, is, is there's some sort of relation, like we have this concept of, of enlightenment that it comes from meditation, right? Like the Buddha sat under a tree and became enlightened. Yeah. And, and that's why we sit and meditate. Yeah. Um, what's the relationship between the kind of the, the steps and, and giving up our character defects and, and doing all these things that are very practical and, and real uh, with 
that spiritual practice of meditating. And uh, does it matter what you do first, or how, how do they work together? Well, I, I think that uh, meditation operates on a couple of different levels or in a couple of different areas in regard to character defects, uh, uh, like the kind of yeah, six-step work. Um, first of all, I think it, it can be very revealing if we are mindful of what's arising uh, and if we're honest about what we're seeing. So it can act as a kind of aspect of or another form of inventory. You know, it's one thing to sit down and go, let me think about what my character defects are. It's another thing to watch your own mind, you know, and watch your own sort of reactive patterns internally. Um, so there, I think there's that inventory element to it. There's also the element of meditation, which is the the releasing element, right? That meditation itself can have a component that's where it's there's an inherent letting go, and this particularly happens with concentration, as the mind. What we call, even the word concentration isn't quite right, but let's say the calm abiding as we settle. There's a cooling. And it's said that that meditative concentration or the calm abiding actually cools the emotions. So that in that way, meditation is weakening the energy of the character defects in real time. Now, that can't be sustained unless you're meditating all the time or unless you develop a more sustained mindfulness, right? So that's one of the purposes, is like we develop this capacity to modulate our reactivity, our inner response to to our experience. Is that too theoretical sounding? It sounds kind of therapeutic, but... um, so we develop that capacity very intentionally in meditation and then we learn to take that into our lives so that we're then not only cooled out, so to speak, in the meditation, you know, we're not sitting there stirred up in anger and anxiety or whatever our kind of character defects are. We're not getting attached and stuck there in meditation, but then we're learning also to bring that capacity to let go into our lives. So that that's what I would say. That's my, you know, my answer to the question. I mean, it's a good question. So it, I, I think that, that's how I understand it. That 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 there's there are these two components of practice. There's the the insight practice, which is the seeing the stuff that we get through meditation, and then there's the sort of uh, neural part. You know that's affecting the the mental states and the physical and and somatic states that are getting triggered, uh, and, and that so that meditation helps us to become less triggerable. And with that, we will close the evening. So let's just sit for a moment. Now I, I often find myself at the end of this class, 
you know, we, we typically do a dedication of merit, but what often comes up for me is gratitude. Uh, and it's gratitude for you all here, really, sincerely, that you come and that you care and are interested in this. And then gratitude to Spirit Rock for opening its doors to us. Not every Buddhist center wants to have people like us coming in. Truly, not to be too fine a point. And, and also gratitude to our teachers, those who have brought the Dharma. And we, you know, the, there's also a tradition of having gratitude all the way back through the lineage, back to the Buddha. To just appreciate that we are the beneficiaries of this great tradition, 2,500, 2,600 year tradition that somehow stayed alive through all the wars and regimes and kings and emperors, through all the uh, death and all the violence and all the love and passion of humans living generation after generation, keeping this teaching alive somehow. And then here this land, this land that once long was lived on by native peoples that we've come to and brought this teaching to. And this building itself, which is a gift of generosity from many Many people who have supported this center. So even though this is December and we're supposed to be giving gifts instead of being grateful like we were in November, I'll just say, uh, may we be appreciative of these gifts that we've received and may we be worthy of them. May May our lives and our thoughts and our words and our actions Uh, carry forth the wisdom and the love, the compassion that this place and this tradition embody. May all beings be free from suffering. Well, thank you. I uh, hope if you feel like some music tomorrow night, I'm not just—I'm not the only performer. There'll be a group, several different performers. And is there a comic involved in this too? Is he funny? She. She. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, and and uh, if you're interested in the day long, on the 27th, grab a, a flyer and register for that. See you next month. Happy New Year. Don't drink or use no matter what.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.